Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. So kauten Schabes at the Skizar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. You're the Gabriel Jewish History Soundbites, and this is uh, part seven of our ongoing series, The Great Shanghai Escape. And you can listen to all the previous episodes of this series, share with your family and friends. Jewish History Soundbites is available on all podcast platforms. You can go into our archive, which is available on all podcast platforms, and see all previous episodes of the hundreds, over 400 episodes in our archive you can uh, leave a rating a review and that's the best way to help the podcast i want to mention two other related podcast items before we get to today's topic number one is that i just did an interview a few days ago on the uh, motivation congregation podcast with michal brook it was a great interview a great interviewer and a great podcast in general if you want to check that out the motivation congregation and um, I spoke about the war here in Israel and related um, topics to see in a historical context. And although on Jewish History Soundbites I attempt, I don't know if I'm successful generally at that attempt, but at least I attempt to be less opinionated and more factual, just sticking to history and the facts, um, over here on Michal Brooks' um, Motivation Congregation podcast interview that I did, I went off on uh, a rail and shared my opinions. So if you would like a more opinionated version of Yehuda Geber, then you can go and check out that interview and um, and in general, his podcast. Another one I'd want to mention, another podcast, the brand new Jewish History podcast has just hit the airwaves. My good friend Nachum Zions um, his new podcast called The Jewish History Schmooze. So if you like Jewish History podcasts, then you might want to check out this new one, The Jewish History Schmooze, by my good friend Nachum Zions. Highly recommended 
for all those who love Jewish history. So now we're going to get to today, today's topic, and the goals of this installment is to talk about the exit. We're finally leaving, talk about how they funded their uh, travel, the refugees who were leaving uh, with all their visas and everything. It's how did they fund the travel um, and the journey on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, the boat to Japan, and then their sojourn in Japan and all kinds of great stories on the way. Um, and their reception in Japan, and, and all their time, their time there. So we're going to try to talk about that. There's also an interesting story uh, of uh, of the local Japanese, especially a a fascinating uh, personality, Professor Setsuzo Kotsuji. I probably mispronounced that. Who eventually converted and became a ger. Um, and he was the one who, who was one of the many Japanese who assisted them there um, when the refugees, when they arrived in Kobe in Japan. Um, he's also our good friend Zarach Varaftig and our old friend Nathan Gutwirt and their rescue activities in Japan. Hopefully we'll get to all that um, in this episode if we if we get a chance. If not, we'll just save it for next and so that's what's great about a series. If we don't have time for something, we just save it for next time. But what we're finally up to is that all these refugees, after everything we talked about, they're staying in Lithuania and they're obtaining the visas. Now we're finally leaving. So they had been receiving first of all, how do they fund their exit? That's where just we have to get them out now. Um, get them on the train and out of Lithuania, out of Soviet-occupied Lithuania, out of the Soviet Union altogether. So until now, their day-to-day life had been mostly funded by their own whatever odd jobs they found as refugees or by selling their personal belongings or any cash savings they had, in addition to philanthropy, both from the impoverished Lithuanian Jewish community themselves or from American Jewish uh, um, philanthropic organizations who sent them funds, primarily the Joint Distribution Committee, that was the main one, and to a lesser extent, specifically for yeshiva students and rabbis, the Vad Hatzala. So that's how they funded their day-to-day life and buying food and all that. They also had to pay for the visas themselves, which was a nominal fee. It wasn't anything crazy. Although, if you'd look about it in absolute um, cash value, to get the um, the either the Japanese or the Dutch visa, or maybe the two of them together, I don't remember exactly, it was the equivalent of an entire week, um, uh, 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 what, what they were allotted from the joint, uh, whatever their... their um, word escapes me there whatever money they were given from the joint for a weekly uh, spending that's they had to spend that on the visas themselves but that wasn't the big cash um, the big story here is what they had to pay to get out so initially the first batch of refugees who left the leaving starts in the fall of 1940 um, October November 1940 is when the first refugees set out towards Moscow and then the Trans-Siberian Railroad, and they don't have to pay a lot of money. They, um, they, they paid a nominal fee for the train ride and for whatever, whatever else, other processing fees that the Soviets wanted is a couple of hundred rubles, whatever it was. What happens is, is that the Soviets come up with a way to extract more money 
um, it's going getting into the Soviet mind. It's it's more like they had granted all these exit visas, and they said to themselves, the Soviets say to themselves, well, Soviet citizens, they can't get out because we don't allow Soviets to leave. Only foreigners, the refugees, are Polish citizens or whatever it is, German citizens, other other countries, primarily Polish, Dutch, a few of them, like we said. So that means that the reason, only reason we're letting them out is because they're non-Soviets. If they're non-Soviets, that means they're tourists. And tourists are just visiting the Soviet Union, and that's why they're allowed to leave. And then they said, ah, they're tourists. So following through with that logic, so then they have to go through the official Soviet tourist agency, which is called Intourist. And then they have to be charged tourist fees, which are exorbitant fees, Eventually, it was about $180 to in-tourist for the whole travel uh, operation. $180 then, which is, I don't even know the conversion rate, but it's an enormous amount of money, which penniless refugees simply did not have. And and you have to pay, not only do they have to pay this crazy fee to in-tourist, but they has to be paid in cash, in dollars, American dollars cash. has to be paid up front. Um, it can't be paid in any other way or in any other currency or any other credit. So, which complicated things for a number of reasons. First of all, no one had that kind of cash, but also because it was illegal to carry American dollars in the Soviet Union. So they would have to get it either on the black market or wired or whatever it was. It was very complicated to, to obtain this money, but they were not compromising. This is what was required since you're now classified as tourists. The upside of this classification was that they were treated as tourists. In other words, they got the best railroad cars on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, luxury cars, relatively to the Soviet Union. They were luxury, obviously. They got the best hotels in Moscow and Vladivostok when they were uh, when they stayed there on their journey. And they got food and they got much better, you know, accommodations on every in every stage of the journey uh, than than Soviet citizens would have gotten because they were considered tourists. So there was definitely an upside of it, meaning that their money that they had to pay eventually paid off because they got very, very well treated. But at the end of the day, they had to come up with all this money. So there's this challenge here, um, and that was provided for in one of three ways. Number one, the refugees themselves came up with the funds by selling their last belongings, by selling their clothing on the black market, family belongings, you know, personal stuff that they had brought along with them when they left Poland. Really a, a, a dire situation. That was the main source of funding that they got for dollars. Again, all on the black market, all illegal, all punishable offenses. And yet this was to just give cash dollars to the in-tourist agency. The other way was from the joint. In other words, they asked for special funding from the joint and desperate telegrams, and, and the joint was able to provide that. The third source, again, specifically for yeshiva students and rabbis, the Vat Hatzala was able to get it. And here we get to one of the greatest stories. Was um, This is all time-sensitive, you have to understand, because when the Soviets provided these exit visas, there was a six-week expiration date on these exit visas. They had to leave Lithuania ASAP, and they had to come up with the money all of a sudden, very quickly. So there's these desperate telegrams sent from the refugees to the joint, to 
to the Haggadah Tzolot of various different other organizations in America um, to try to get come up with these funds. Um, I, I read a telegram, uh, uh, saw an actual uh, you know copy of a telegram that Rabbi Yisrael Finkel sends to Rabbi Kamenovich. Um, he says that all you know we're, we're desperate for time. There's 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 we're running out of time, and please send it right away. And he's he like he like even says. Even says there, the Jewish people will never forget you for what you're doing. Like, uh, uh, like really desperation that he says to Rav Kamenovich. Rav Kamenovich is not only one of the heads of the Varat he's also directly affiliated with the Mir. He was the fundraiser and president of the Mir Yeshiva. So here he he had this obligation not you know to all Yeshiva students and to all rabbis as in his capacity of the Varat and specifically to the Mir Yeshiva in order to get them this funding. Now Rav Kamenovich receives this telegram from Rebleza Yudel on Shabbos, Shabbos morning, Shabbos afternoon, depends which version you, you, you see it. The date isn't given, but assuming that it's sometime in the fall of 1940. And here, this is like the yeshivish version of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. If we had a yeshivish uh, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, there would be a poem about Ravram Kalmanovich's Shabbos Ride. This is it. This is like in 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 yeshiva dormitories and and shalom zachers uh, and and you know Thursday night shalom get-togethers. This is something it's talking about. You know, Rav Kamenovich's Shabbos ride, um, how he how he was mechal Shabbos because he understood that it's a desperate situation to get out of the Soviet Union, and and he goes around fundraising and he raises. He has to. I mean, think about it. It's it's it's. Uh, well over 200 students of the Mir Yeshiva, then all the rabbinical faculty and their families, um, and each one is $180 at that time, which is an enormous amount of money. Plus there are other rabbi refugees, there are other Yeshiva student refugees, there's hundreds and hundreds of people that he has to all of a sudden come up with $180 for. This is an enormous fundraising effort in in in, in a very, very short amount of time, and it's heroic. It's It's absolutely... This moment is one of the most important stories that Rorel Kamenovich pretty much single-handedly um, going around Shabbos and in subsequent days manages to raise the entire amount, wire it over, and get the money into the hands of the refugees all in time for them to get out in time. And he was successful, pretty much 100% successful. In other words, incredible bright light on this rather, you know, Dark Horizon is that this was a very, very successful operation and it is completely due to Ram Kalmanovich's um, earnest and uh, efforts and immediate efforts going around on Shabbos to be able to collect these uh, funds. Um, and um, and uh, that's a legendary Shabbos ride of Ram Kalmanovich. So, the Mir and most refugees, not just the Mir, they're talking about thousands of refugees, like I said, they're leaving, uh, they start leaving October, November, uh, December um, 1940, then going through the winter of 1941. Um, the, the, actually, it's interesting, the way the Mir memoirs are written is that they left between Hanukkah and Purim. So they start their exodus on Hanukkah, and everyone had gotten out by Purim time, which is like, you know, March uh, 1941. There's even a description of the religious refugees and yeshiva students lighting candles, Hanukkah candles, on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which is a 10 to 12 day journey. So they spent the chunk of, of Hanukkah on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. So 
The Trans-Siberian Railroad is the longest railroad in the world. Like I said, 10 to 12 day journey. That's besides for the Kovna-Moscow route, which was presumably a couple of days as well. Then they stayed over in Moscow for a few days, like I said, in a fancy hotel. Um, and then they boarded the Moscow Trans-Siberian Railroad, which, which ended up in Vladivostok, the gateway to the far east, the end, edge of the Soviet Union in the east. And uh, I think I started off this series in part one by mentioning that uh, another myth-busting that um, the Trans-Siberian Railroad was one of the busiest railroads in the world and still is, and it was all commerce. It was a single-track rail, so it's very busy, and um, all commerce going to the east, to the far east, and you know, military and commercial and merchandise and uh, any 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 anything that's going that way is using the Trans-Siberian Railroad. So there's this myth that it um, that the only time it was ever used was to bring the refugees to uh, to to their safety is a is a myth. I think I figured out where the myth came from is because the Briskorov once said that the whole the building the Trans-Siberian Railroad was worth it just to transport the refugees to safety. Um, so maybe from that they 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 uh, they, they you know, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to say that it was only used for that. Uh, there's actually um, um, an interesting description of the one of the stops on the rail line of the Trans-Siberian Railroad was in the Jewish Autonomous State of Birobijan. The Stalin's strange, bizarre uh, attempt at creating a Jewish territorial, um, you know, completely communist, uh, you know, secular, but Yiddish, Yiddish speaking, and to a certain extent Yiddish culture, uh, um, at the edge of the Soviet Union, all the way on the other side, and almost by the Far East, and the Ch near the Chinese border, the Mongolian border, whatever it is over there. And uh, way back, a few, several years ago, I had an episode in Jewish History Soundbites uh, going into the whole story of Birobidjan. What's important for the context of our story is that these Jewish refugees, Jewish refugees, religious refugees, yeshiva student refugees, met up with these Jews, Yiddish-speaking, completely secular communist Jews um, in Birobidjan. And it was a shock for the refugees and for the Jewish residents, the Soviet residents of of uh, Birobidjan, this, this meeting of worlds. And and you know their their attempt to to relate to them in in Jewishness and some, there's even descriptions of of them begging for Jewish articles like tefillin or religious books and, and stuff like that and then giving it to them and there's you know a, a strange interaction a very short interaction but a, a poignant one as well and they arrive in Vladivostok um, and they're put up again in the nice hotels there um, and uh, and they stay there for actually quite some time um, in, in Vladivostok um, because until they were able to cross the border, in other words, leave the Soviet Union, and again, there's major checks at the border, make sure they're not smuggling anything and make sure all the documents in order, the Soviet border inspection was not an easy thing to go through until there's a, a boat available for them to take them. And, um, and then they have to cross the Sea of Japan, uh, which was a two to three, sometimes four day journey. Um, and they arrived at the port of Tsuruga, um, and from there, they took a train to Kobe uh, city in Japan, where most of the refugees stayed. So now that was the general overview, and I'm going to go a little bit more in depth about what the journey itself was like, um, and uh, in no particular order. Uh, some of it has to do with the 
um, the Trans-Siberian Railroad, some about the boat journey. Um, for instance, um, my wife's grandfather uh, related to me, and he said, say this quite often to his family members, um, how um, when he was when he was, he didn't go with the Mir Yeshiva. He, had, he got his own, whatever, whole, he didn't get a Sugiharav. He, he got his own, uh, his own way out. It's a different story. It's a more of a personal family story. But either way, he's, he's, uh, he's in Moscow. And again, he's being treated like a tourist. So he's getting, he's getting a, a nice stay in the hotel. Now, the tourist package from in-tourist, after the, he had paid this whole fee, he had come with a tourist pass. In other words... They were able to go see the tourist sites of Moscow all for free because it was included in the tourist package. So it included visiting Moscow's museums. Now, he was bored, so he just decided, hey, why not? It's all free anyway. Might as well go see the great museums of Moscow. See, this 18-year-old yeshiva student um, who had been, at the, until that time, in Kletsk by uh, Byron Cutler, and then in the, Shanghai would join up with the mirror. So now he's going to art museums in Moscow, and he described looking at the various uh, beautiful uh, artworks in Moscow museums and how and how uh, much of an impression it made on him. So they had, you know, you got to some lighter moments as well. The Trans-Siberian Railroad is described in many testimonies as having turned into a base madrash, meaning they would have three minyanim a day, they would put on their thousand fill in these luxury cars. It's the middle of the Soviet Union, when these things were never done in public anywhere, but these were refugees, tourists, right? So they were just passing through, so they were allowed to do whatever they wanted, pretty much. They studied Torah, and there's even non-Jewish descriptions of witnessing these people about how he saw them uh, debating Talmudic uh, uh, law together, and how they, how much it made an impression on passerby, and, and you know, it's a sight never really seen in the Soviet Union. Now, the boat, the boat from Vladivostok to the Sea of Japan was another, you know, whole part of this journey. It was, it was. Uh, you know, stormy seas very often. There's a fascinating testimony that I once saw of Reb David Kviat, later a Rashiva in Mir Brooklyn, who described uh, the the uh, the uh, very powerful description of how stormy the seas were when he was on it, and people got seasick and they thought that the boat would capsize. They would all sink after they had finally gotten through um, everything that they had been through, all the getting the visas and crossing the Soviet Union and getting past the Soviet border, and now they're basically in freedom. They just have to dock in Japan. And here they might be drowned in the Sea of Japan because this boat might capsize. And 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 he said the the you know it was a very weak and you know very uh, you know not very seaworthy boat. Now the boat that they generally describe is the Amakusa Maru. There were other boats too. There were several boats that did this Vladivostok Tsuruga uh, uh, route, but the main one was Amakusa Maru. Now. One of the boats that were used was a fisherman's boat, which was a really weak, you know, really a, not a not a passenger boat at all. And that it may be, I saw that Varhaftig describes it as well. It may be that it was that it that it shortly after the refugees were safely in Japan, and the refugees came over several months. So we're assuming that this means most of the refugees, or or after all the refugees came, you know, it was over a period of like six months. So you can't like say after. You know, one trip is after all the refugees were there. Um, there's a a story that goes that the boat that took them sunk. So you see that that it was meant just for the refugees. So I don't know which boat that's referring to. Maybe there was this fisherman's boat that Varaftig describes that was also used, but it was not the main one that was used. The main one that was used was the Amakusa Maru, and I think that in many of the accounts it says that the Amakusa Maru was sunk shortly afterwards. So. 
you know, you could say whatever you want. If you just take, a, I wanted to check out, see if it's true. So I googled Amakusa Maru, Japanese ship, and it turns out that the Amakusa Maru was used by the Japanese Navy uh, through World War II, and in November 1944, it was sunk by a U.S. naval submarine, torpedoed. Oh well, there goes another myth, but maybe it was a different boat that sunk right afterwards. Either way, so, um, it was a rickety, rickety boat, either way. So, uh, um, if we, if we uh, take a, a look back, after everyone gets out, uh, just take one last glance back at the ones who stayed. The ones who didn't get visas, the ones who weren't able to get visas, the ones who were concerned about taking the visas, the ones who, uh, who whoever it is, everyone else, everyone else who did not get these uh, visas. What happened to them? So even though we're talking about the whole time about how everyone, they're escaping the Soviet Union. They were not escaping the Nazis. There was no Nazi occupation at this point. But less than a year later, just a few months later, there was a Nazi invasion. June 22nd, 1941, Operation Barbarossa. The Wehrmacht, the German army, invades the Soviet Union, opening up the greatest, largest and most devastating front of World War II, the Eastern Front, and this becomes the primary front of World War II, the main war of Germany, of Hitler, is against the Soviet Union. He reneges on his uh, um, non-aggression pact that was less than two years old, and they invade the Soviet Union. Now, following the Wehrmacht was SS... Uh, uh, SS platoons or battalions, SS battalions rather, four SS battalions called Einsatzgruppen, A, B, C, and D, and they were to take care of enemies of Germany, specifically communists, Jews, adult male Jews initially, but then it soon expanded to um, all Jews, men, women, and children, entire communities, and their method of execution and murder was to round up Every Jew, eventually, every Jew over the course of summer 1941, it got more and more devastating, these attacks, um, and, uh, and, and they rounded them up, marched them out of town to nearby forest or nearby cemetery or someplace like that, have them dig their own graves, have them strip um, of their, all their clothing, and machine-gunned to death into these mass graves. That's how the Jews of the Soviet Union were murdered. They are the first mass murder of the Holocaust. This is even before their initial months or even before the final solution is formally implemented, but the mass murder of Jews by the Nazis takes place in the Soviet Union after the invasion. And therefore, and it's the highest uh, decimation of the entire Holocaust, takes place in the Nazi-occupied Soviet Union, in the places like the Baltic States, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and um, Eastern Poland and Belarus, Ukraine, all the Nazi-occupied areas of the Soviet Union. And... Um, and uh, that is a over well over 90 percent, 94, 96 in some areas percent of the Jews in Nazi occupied Soviet Union are murdered by the Nazis in the framework of these mass murders in the final solution. So pretty much anyone who stayed behind was wiped out. A terrible, terrible ending of Jewish life in those areas, a terrible uh, extermination of Jewry. And, uh, and therefore, anyone who did get out um, from the Soviet Union, when they exited the Soviet Union at the time, they they um, found out later that their lives had been saved because they were not around when the Nazis invaded, um, including many Mir students. Not all Mir students got out. There was between two and three hundred. I can never get an exact number. Um, some will tell you that it was closer to three hundred. 
Um, others will tell you it was closer to 200. There was about 400 students in the mir before the war, so it was somewhere between half and three-quarters of the mir student body was saved by their escape to Shanghai. Um, so let's call it the majority of the mir yeshiva. Um, I saw a testimony for about the in the massacre, the Nazi and Lithuanian collaborators, of course, massacre in Kedan, where the Mir had stayed for several months. There were 19 Mir Yeshiva students who were killed along with the Jewish community of Kedan. So there you go, there's a bunch, there's a lot more in Kovna and Vilna who were killed. There were also Mir Yeshiva students. We had an episode recently about that story as well. I said they were in Vlavidovostok uh, for a while until they were able to get a boat to Japan. In fact, some of them... Uh, didn't go to Japan. They they went directly from Vladivostok to Shanghai. Um, in in April 1941, there was one or two boats of refugees who went directly from Vladivostok to Shanghai. So they got to Shanghai before all the other refugees did. Um, and my wife's grandfather actually uh, told me he 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 was one of those. Um, and the, for various different reasons, um, the Japanese rerouted those uh, those. I mean, there was a, already a shipping line that went directly from uh, from Vladivostok to, to Shanghai. I think Rabaran Kreiser was one of those. Also, there's a bunch of refugees refugees who who did that. Um, in fact, my wife's uh, grandfather told me another great story about uh, Pesach in Vladivostok. He was stuck there for Pesach. So he's in a nice hotel. So that's nice. I guess it was like a Pesach program in a nice hotel um, in Vladivostok. I don't know if any. Uh, contemporary Pesach programs have done one in Vladivostok yet, but my grandfather, along with many other refugees, were. Um, so the only nice accommodations they had were the hotel. They did not really have many, much food. Um, the only one in his group, in his hotel, with his group of refugees, who received any matzah from the joint, excuse me, was Ramesh Shatskis, one of the refugees there, was Ramesh Shatskis, the Lomzharov, who was one of the prominent leaders of the refugee community, and he received a box of matzah from the, presumably the joint, uh, maybe the Varatzala, and um, so he was with him. Now Ramesh Shatskis graciously shared all his matzah with all the refugees who were with him, so um, my uh, his grandfather received a a kezayis of matzah, just enough for one seder, for just for the seder night, enough to eat for the mitzvah, and that was it. No more matzah for the rest of Pesach, because Ramesh Shatskis wanted to ensure that everyone who was in that group received uh, matzah. So they said that's all he had. And then they went to the market in Vladivostok and purchased uh, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables and, and fish and anything else that they could buy that would be you know, that would be able to eat on Pesach. It had to be kosher and not chametz, not so simple, and potatoes and stuff like that. Um, so he, he described having to cook fish on a little premise in his hotel room, and then the uh, it's a luxury hotel. You can't cook on a gas uh, premise in your uh, kerosene, whatever it is, in your hotel room. It creates a stench, especially you're cooking fish. So the hotel... Uh, Manager came down to his room, so he hid the fish and the <laughs> premise in his closet, and then said, "I don't know what you're talking about. I don't smell anything." Uh, you know, one of those you know, uh, stories. So he would re- relate it every single Pesach. So we grew up. You know, we we lived. We 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 heard this this Velvetovostok Pesach story many times in our family. But that's part of the refugee story. Speaking of Pesach, most of the mirrors and other refugees at this time were already in Japan. 
by the time the Pesach of 1940, Pesach is usually in April, by April pretty much the most of the refugees were already in Japan, uh, was only, only the last uh, stragglers were still in Vlavidovostok, and um, there was the issue of getting, obtaining Pesach food. So some Pesach uh, arrangements were made from the Jewish communities of Shanghai and Harbin, the Chinese Jewish communities, the Russian Jewish communities in these two big cities of China, Japanese occupied China by this point, um, Harbin and um, where there's a big rabbi, Rabbi Aaron Moshe Kisilev, and in Shanghai, Rabbi Meir Ashkenazi, um, Russian, a lot of Chabad um, um, communities, and we'll talk about that uh, perhaps when we get to Shanghai, these prominent uh, communities, uh, more Shanghai than, than Harbin, but uh, they were able to help the refugees in Japan, but also from the joint, and the Varatzala who were able to send Manischewitz matzah and kosher wine for the refugees to arrive just in time for Pesach. In fact, one of my Rebbeim in the mirror related to me that he was once uh, talking to an Altamir of his generation, um, of the previous generation, when uh, when he was young, and he, this Altamir told him about receiving Manischewitz machine matzah um, in, in, for Pesach in Japan in 1941. And, um, you know, my Rebbe in the mirror, who grew up in a very religious home in Bara Park, and, you know, you, you wouldn't eat Manischewitz machine matzah for the Seder night in, in any, in any uh, upstanding Orthodox home. You know, he, 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 so, so he made like a face to this Altamir, <laughs> You know, like he made like a sneer and 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 uh, like uh, you know, <laughs> you call that kosher matzah, kind of like you know, uh, you guys had your matzah very nice. Uh, wow, kosher Manischewitz uh, machine matzah for the seder night, and this Altamir got very angry at him, and he said, because he's a Talmud of Rabbi Rucham, so you know they had a musser. He said, he said, as long as you have your kosher matzah for Pesach. You don't mind dismissing hundreds of refugees and 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 saying, "Oh, these hundreds of refugees didn't eat kosher matzah for Pesach because they're not kosher to my standards." You're able to, you know, say that with disdain. He said that's uh, completely inappropriate. You obviously have to look at the context of the time and the view of the time. And we were eating very ideally kosher matzah. That's that's what we had. We had this matzah, and it was kosher, and it was good for Pesach. It was not chametz. It's fine. And you, you know, being living in your comfort, you're saying, oh, you call that kosher matzah. That's a very inappropriate way to view history and to appreciate what people um, went through at the time. They're lucky they had matzah altogether. Um, so that's also a, a, a cute story. Um, so the the um, they they're so they're in Japan, right? That's uh, that was the point. They get to they get to Japan and um, and they they're received there by the um, by several several factions of of Japanese society uh, receive the the refugees as they arrive. Number one, most importantly, the Jewish community. There's a local Jewish community in Japan. A Japanese Jewish history is very interesting, very, very little, not that much. But if we skip all the ancient history, which there were, you know, different times of, uh, in Japanese Jewish history. But if we go to the modern times, so there was very, very small Jewish presence. Um, there was a tiny Jewish community in Nagasaki. Uh, luckily, it was extinct by the time the atom bomb was uh, was dropped there, so no Jews were killed, as far as I know. Um, but the but the Nagasaki Jewish community, uh, you know, dissipated. Um, there was a very small Jewish presence in Tokyo itself. 
um, in Yokohama. Um, the major, major, uh, relatively large Jewish community, it was like 40 families or so, um, was in Kobe, Japan. That was the main Jewish community, and they were organized around the Jewish community. They had their own shul, their own shechita, their own mikvah, their own, uh, you know, normal Jewish life under the circumstances. They were relatively small. There were were even two Jewish communities. Once once you have one, you have to have two because it can't be the same. There's the old, even smaller Sephardic Jewish community. It came from Iraq initially um, and migrated with time. And there was the a little bit slightly larger Ashkenazi Russian Jewish community that had arrived more recently with because of pogroms in Russia and, and general emigration from Imperial Russia and and later during the revolution and post World War One and all that. So they were organized and they were the ones who received the refugees. Now I think about it: there's a small forty family Jewish community and they're overwhelmed by thousands of refugees and incredibly and heroically and says a lot about the Jewish people in general, and specifically the Jewish community of Kobe, Japan, who unfortunately is not, not remembered much today, what they did. They, they put themselves out, and they, and they went ahead, and they were funded mostly by the joint. Obviously, they couldn't fund it themselves. The joint provided most of the funding, but they funneled it through the Kobe Jewish community, and they were the ones who actually were in the trenches, receiving them at the port of Tsuruga, helping them onto the trains, bringing them to Koba, finding housing for them, providing for them, interceding with the Japanese government on their behalf to extend the transit visas, doing all these things, local Jews. Um, that's uh, you know a very, very important uh, story about what they did. A really, really beautiful story. There was also the local Japanese population. And I always assumed that it was just local Japanese in Koba who you know, received the Jews well and who... Uh, was hospitable and provided them with food and housing and all that. I had a fascinating conversation a few years ago with a elderly Japanese Christian couple from Koba. And uh, at the time in, 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 Je- in Japan, at the time of World War II, I think the population, the religious beliefs of the population were approximately about a third uh, Shinto and then another approximately third. Again, my numbers are, might, 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 might be slightly off. Uh, another approximately third was Buddhist, and the other approximately third was like these, you know, folk religions and local religious practices. Only about 1% of the Japanese population was Christian, and they were a minority, and to a certain extent, I discriminated against minority. And what I heard from this Japanese Christian couple who had done research into this this saga because their parents were among those uh, Japanese Christians in Kobe who received the Jews, and they had documentary evidence to back it up. They showed it to me. They, they, um, they, uh, the, the idea was that being that they were a Christian community, and they were a minority, and they were a persecuted minority, not perse- I wouldn't say pers- no, not, not persecuted, a discriminated against minority, they uh, related more to the refugees' plight. And therefore, it was primarily the Japanese Christian population who rose up and welcomed the refugees and provided them with food initially and helped them with housing and helped them settle in to Koba and Japanese life. Very interesting story. Um, there was the Japanese government who extended the visas after all kinds of intercessions from the refugee community, from the Jewish community, from other Japanese. So the Japanese government has a role in this as well. And then the most fascinating part is this Professor Situzo Katsuji. 
um, who is a Orientalist. He had written his doctorate on, on Hebrew and Semitic languages. Um, he had done some work in the United States. He he addressed the refugees in Hebrew. Um, he was an expert on Tanakh, on the Hebrew Bible in its original language, and and uh, he was fascinated by the Bible and by the by the Hebrew language and by the Jewish people, and he had come from a long aristocratic family of Shinto priests, but he converted to Christianity. Later on in 1959, actually, he converted to Orthodox Judaism. Um, he lived in first in Israel, and then he lived in Brooklyn, and he, uh, a fascinating person, he was, became Avraham Katsuji at the end of his life, uh, not the end of his life, and, and um, actually Varhaftig uh, assisted him with his, uh, with, um, his uh, uh, living in Israel and his conversion and, and uh, his reception there and his research, and you know, he remained close with Varhaftig for the rest of his life. He eventually moved to the United States, um, he he lived there in New York, and then he passed away in 1973, if I'm not mistaken, and is buried in Har Menuchis. As far as I know, I'm one of the only people who's visited his kever on Har Menuchis. Uh, I've gone there. I have to bring more groups there. It's a little bit out of the way, so groups generally don't want to go that far. But uh, if you ever want to do something more adventurous in Har Menuchis with my tours there, then let me know, and we can go to Professor Avram Katsuji's kever. I think it's important to go because he did so much to help the refugee community during their stay in Japan that we owe him a lot of uh, gratitude. Uh, he, he was an incredible person. He served as an interpreter for the Jewish refugees. He interceded with the Japanese government, uh, helping them extend their visas. He made them feel welcome, made them feel at home. He Every step of the way, he was there. Um, so there was uh, all this um, activity from his part as well. So we'll continue next week in our next installment with their stay in Japan. There's a lot more to say about the refugees' stay in Japan, about how they settled in Japan, how long they stayed there, Varaftig's activities there, Nathan Gutfeld's activities. There's a whole story about a group of refugees that was almost turned back to Soviet Union and Gutfeld um, um, interceded with the uh, Dutch consul and was able to uh, allow them to come to Japan. We'll speak about that next week and we'll also get the refugees to Shanghai. So there's a lot more coming in the next installment on the series. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform and I hope you enjoyed.